Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here for your word and no mere man's. Grant that my words might be yours. Any of mine, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Earlier this fall, when the strategic planning team had our first meeting, in order to begin discerning how best to steward the growth that we're seeing in the size of our congregation, the very first piece of advice they gave me was, make sure to preach on these five topics before the year is over. The topics are hell, submission to authority, the environment, marriage and divorce, and tithing. I'm trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> Essentially, what the team said was, if we're still growing after that, then we know the growth is from God. <laughs> the members of the strategic planning team who are here this morning are shaking their heads in disbelief because it never happened. Uh, I kind of wish it did, though. I think there's, there's something to that, at least a little bit. And I'm trying to, to make light of the fact that we've dealt with some weighty matters this fall, and you've hung in there like champs. And I want to thank you for that. Now, we've discussed these topics in small part. Just small part, because I've led us to these topics, but in large part because God's Word has led us to these topics and to the lectionary that we share with our Anglican brothers and sisters. If we are people who really want to sit at Jesus' feet, then the moment that what Jesus says makes us uncomfortable is not a moment that we desire to leave. We still remain. God's Word has comfort to offer us, and it also has discomfort to offer us at times. But we know that everything that God gives to us, whether comfort or discomfort, is meant to lead to our abundant life. It's meant to lead to fullness of joy, and so we remain. In the prophetic books of Scripture, what we often see is that God offers His people both, both of these things, comfort and discomfort. Encouragement and exhortation, compassion and confrontation. So far in the book of Malachi, we've seen this to be the case, and we'll see it again today as we find ourselves in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. If you're still wondering when that sermon on tithing happened this fall, it's about to happen. I encourage you to turn to your, your Bibles, Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, we're looking at verses 6 to 12. As I did last week, I'm going to break this passage up into a couple of parts and we'll work through it as we go along. We'll begin first with verses 6 to 7b. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. The Lord speaks. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. One of the core characteristics about our God is his divine immutability. That God is immutable is not to be confused with unmutable. That's what happens when you lose the remote to your TV. Immutable, <laughs> immutable is the reality that God does not change. His nature, his character, his power can never and will never change. As Hebrews puts this, he is the same 
yesterday and today and forever. What the Lord emphasizes here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 about his immutability relates to the promises that he made to Israel. The Lord made a covenant to be faithful to his people, and nothing will change that. Not even their unfaithfulness will change it. Thus, God says, because I do not change, you therefore are not consumed. Evidently, to be consumed is what they deserve. They have been mutable. They've made vows to God a hundred times over and then changed their minds an equal number of times. As verse 7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. From the days of your fathers is a long time. That God is immutable and won't forsake them is not an excuse for them to do nothing. That's not where God leaves it. Instead, God declares... Return to me. It's time to return to me. Every time I hear this phrase, return to me, I think of the fantastically cheesy romantic comedy, Return to Me, which you should totally watch. And when you watch it, I guarantee you'll be singing Dean Martin's song by the same name, Return to Me. I will not sing that for you, but return to me. Oh, my dear, I'm so lonely. Hurry back, hurry back. Oh, my love, hurry back. I am yours. Return to me, for my heart wants you only. Hurry home, hurry home, won't you please hurry home to my heart? Some of you of a certain age I, I know are, are hearing that in your, in your heads right now. I listened to it in my office before I came in because I wanted to. It wouldn't be quite right for us to think of God as a lonely lover who can't go on without his beloved's embrace. That wouldn't be right. And yet, the covenant between God and his people is undoubtedly a covenant of love. There is unequivocally on the pages of Scripture a divine romance. God yearning for the people he's made with a passionate love. And the truth is that the people of Israel have gone after other lovers. And so the Lord confronts them often about their adulterous hearts, saying, return to me. Returning to God is essentially what the act of repentance is. All of us have our origin and our identity in God, we're his image bearers, his creatures. Which means that if we are no longer near to God, it is because we've departed. We've departed. Therefore, a restored relationship with God comes when we turn away from our other loves and we return to him who is love. Returning to God is also a way of describing what comes in the next couple of verses of this chapter. So verses 7c to verse 9 the people say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The Lord calls his people to return to him, and then his people kind of feign ignorance. How shall we return? What is there to repent of? I think that underneath this question is actually the belief that they've not really done anything to depart from the Lord. To the contrary, they seem to believe that the Lord has departed from them. We're still here, God. Where are you at? It's kind of the attitude. Remember, this is exactly how the book of Malachi opened up in chapter 1, where the Lord said in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? 
So the question is not necessarily a genuine one, as in, Lord, will you please show us how to come back to you? It's not that. And yet the Lord will play their game. He says in verse 8, how should you return? Well, will man rob God? (laughs) Yet you are robbing me. Now, it's certainly not as if there's only one thing that the people need to turn away from. There's plenty. And as we've seen, God has already addressed some of those things in the previous passages. But, But here the Lord does hone in on one very odd grievance. Theft. How does one rob God? Can you break into his home so stealthily that you could walk away with his valuables? God needs to get a ring camera or something. Can you send him a scam email that looks so legitimate that he'll just unassumingly wire you some cash? Can you squat on his property so brazenly and persistently that eventually his estate is deemed to be yours? If you're Danny Ocean... And you and your team of 11 have just successfully robbed $160 million from Terry Benedict's casinos. What kind of heist would you plan if your new target was the creator of the cosmos? How would you do it? Those seem to me to be fair questions. And it's the kind of question that the people ask, how have we robbed you? How could we even? God's answer is surprising. In your tithes and contributions... You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Does it feel to you like God is being a bit dramatic? It kind of does to me. The, The Israelites have not been giving their tithes and contributions to the Lord as he commanded them to do. That's clearly disobedience. But is it robbery? Isn't that giving them too much credit? It's not possible to steal from Almighty God and Even if they successfully did so, can God not take it right back? Robbery? Imagine that I tell my children I want them to show me their love by using some of their allowance to buy me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It's one of my love languages. But in asking them to do so, they refuse. They won't do it. Clearly, they're not being obedient, and I would have every legitimate adult reason to be upset with them but would it it fit for me to call them thieves? (laughs) How would that sound? Even more adult, right? Even more grown up. You thieves. (laughs) Doesn't that seem like a little much? I, I mean, can't I just take their allowance straight out of their piggy banks? And yes, they have piggy banks, and they would do nothing to stop me. I'd walk on over to Starbucks. I could. My point in all of this is not to say that what God's people are doing is, is no big deal, is simply to say that my first response to this is this doesn't seem like robbery to me. So then why is God's indictment of the people, you are robbing me, the whole nation of you? To understand this, I want to look at what tithes and contributions actually are, and then we can talk about why not giving them amounts to robbery in God's eyes. The word tithe essentially means a gift of 10%. God's law commanded that his people tithe on whatever income or harvest or asset that they gained. This was a way of acknowledging that God was indeed the owner of all things, just like Jesus talked about in the parable of the talents. God's the owner. It's a way of uh, articulating with our lives that, that God is worthy of all things, and therefore if we own anything, it's because God has given it to us. So tithes were given out of the first fruits of what the people received as a way of showing that they were devoted to God, first and foremost. Now, we tend to think that there was only one tithe in the Old Testament, but the truth is that the the system of giving in the Torah 
is much more complex and much more costly than just that. There were essentially three tithes. Three. There was the standard tithe of 10% to the Levites, which would support the ministry of the temple. That's the one we typically refer to, the tithe in the Old Testament. Then there was the second tithe of 10%, which supported the three annual festivals in Jerusalem. It was corporate for the whole nation. And finally, in the third and the sixth years of the seven-year cycle, there was the tithe, the 10%, to provide money for the poor. So, if Israelites were faithful to the requirements of the law, then depending on the year, they would give between 20% and 30% of their income. Then, offerings were on top of that. They were the spontaneous, self-initiated gifts that one wanted to give to God in pure thanks. So when God says that the people were failing to give their tithes and contributions, this is what he means. Perhaps they were not tithing at all. Perhaps they were only supporting the Levites but ignoring the poor. Perhaps they were not tithing on first fruits but were tithing on last fruits. What's clear is that in some way they weren't committed to honoring and obeying God when it came to their income and their harvests and their assets. But again, what still isn't clear to me is how this amounts to robbery. When we think of theft, we are more than likely thinking of the act by which a person takes something that belongs to another. We steal cars, we loot stores, we boost drugs, we raid the cookie jar. I'm talking about general we, not not really we. (laughs) Theft is something that we do as an act of commission. We commit theft. What we often don't consider are thefts of omission. Theft by omission is when we fail to return to a person that which belongs to him. Our legal system in the United States actually has a category of thefts of omission. There are all sorts of examples of this kind of thing. One that's getting a lot of attention on the national stage at this moment is wage theft. You heard about wage theft? It's when employers fail to pay employees what they agreed to pay them or what the law requires. That's a theft of omission. And even though it might be much more complicated nowadays, this is certainly not a new phenomenon. Even the Old Testament talks a lot about not paying workers what they're due and what God thinks about that. But all this to say, sometimes theft is the result of what we've done. Other times, it's the result of what we've left undone. The confession of sin should be ringing in our ears. Back in verse 7, when the Lord declares, return to me, I wonder if part of what God is saying is, it's time for you to return to me, that which belongs to me. Return it to me. Everything you own belongs to me. So when you do not return to me that which I've commanded you to return, you have robbed me by omission. This leads us into verse 10, the first part. The Lord says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. You might know this already, but one of the most fascinating features of this passage is that it stands alone as an exception to a very important rule. Scripture is pretty emphatic that it is evil to put God to the test. It's evil. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, you shall not 
put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes this exact verse when the devil tempts him to put God to the test when he's being tempted in the wilderness. The problem with trying to test God is that it assumes that we are in a position of superiority over him. That we can somehow run an experiment on God and evaluate whether or not he is what he says he is. Like we're the arbiters of whether God is God. When we have this kind of attitude, we, we demonstrate neither faith in God and what God says, nor trust in his character. Really, we've put our faith in ourselves. And yet here, God says, put me to the test. I think we're supposed to do a double take. Did I hear that right? Test you? Yes. Test me. Tithe to me and see if I'm true to my word. Return to me and watch me return it right back to you. And the Lord expands upon this as the passage ends in verses 11 to 12 saying this, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Earlier this year, I preached a sermon in the season of Lent about how God's grace trains us through the practice of giving. Giving is an essential part of our spiritual life. And in that sermon, it was specifically about the broad sense of giving, giving in a broad sense, how to make giving a part of your life of discipleship. If you missed that one, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. I got pretty practical and I hope it was helpful. For today, because of how specifically this passage in Malachi deals with tithing, I want to speak specifically to that topic, tithing. Before I go any further, I need to explain that the New Testament does not teach the tithe. It doesn't. The New Testament does not teach the tithe. The Mosaic law and its standards of giving are not placed upon Christians. And Jesus does not establish any new rules or specifications that we must bind ourselves to when it comes to the specific amount that we give. Yet, what Jesus makes clear is that the law is not abolished by his coming. It's rather fulfilled in him. What does that mean? Well, it means that the law, including its sacrificial system of giving, was meant to show us what God is like and what we are meant to be like. But now that Jesus has come, he is the one who shows us what God is like and what we are meant to be like. He is our new law, and that new law includes standards of giving. And the standard of giving that we find in Jesus is nothing short of radical, self-giving generosity. Radical, self-giving generosity. That is a higher bar than tithing ever was, whether we're thinking of it as 10% or between 20 and 30. So the New Testament does not teach tithing as a rule for us to follow. Instead, it gives us a picture of Jesus and it says, let us be like him. Generosity is a matter of imitating Jesus. And imitating Jesus is a matter of generosity. So, if all that's the case, why am I still talking about tithing? It's because when we talk about generosity, it is much easier to do so if we treat it as this subjective, out there thing. The moment we start speaking in specifics, it always hits closer to home. 
it's harder for us to ignore. Sometimes we don't seem to recognize that there is really a level of objectivity when it comes to generosity, with what is generous and what is not generous. And therefore, I believe that tithing is still a particularly valuable tool for our spirituality, particularly because it offers us, in some small way, an objective lens to look at giving in our life of discipleship. I think this is the heart behind the Anglican Catechism, which says this about tithing when it asks the question, what is an appropriate standard of giving for you as a Christian? A tithe, which is 10% of my income. That is the minimum standard of giving for the work of God's church and the spread of his kingdom. Yet, I should give generously out of all that God has entrusted to me. As the Catechism suggests, the tithe is not the place to end the place to aim for when it comes to our giving, it's better thought of as the place to begin. From there, we grow in our generosity. So with an understanding that tithing is a tool for our spirituality, in what ways does tithing matter for us as Christians? I want to suggest three ways this morning. Number one, tithing teaches us a better amount. Tithing teaches us a better amount. Often when we give, we give out of our sense of what we are able to give kind of how we operate. And often what we feel that we are able to give is underestimated. There are a number of reasons for this, and I think they're probably the same factors that were present for the people of Malachi's day. There are reasons like we don't know what God actually desires of us, so ignorance, or we feel entitled to the things that we've earned, pride, or we've spent all that we have on things that we don't need, materialism, or we fear that we won't have enough, or we worry that we'll miss out on what the Lord and what the world has to offer us? Fear. Or we have an intense desire for just more, not less. Greed. Or we lack the desire or the intentionality to actually give. And that might be apathy or passivity. These are the reasons that we often underestimate what we're able to give. Whatever reasons might affect what we feel we're able to give. Tithing can be a part of how God reshapes our minds and hearts. Tithing helps us understand what God's desires out of our worship. It reminds us that we are not the owner of our things, that God is. It it gives us a clearer picture of what our needs actually are and what are not needs. It teaches us that there's always enough with God, always enough, and that God is the place where more is to be found. That's where more is. It teaches us that God is worthy of our care and our best energy. Learning to tithe is an exercise in faith. It's like a workout for your muscles. It grows our trust that God will provide when we seek to obey him. And God does. And this is actually an equal exercise for all of us, since what we give is a percentage of what we receive and not some set amount. It means that Our giving, the exercise of this practice, the exercise of our trust, is proportional to what we have. It's really the same for all of us. So tithing not only teaches us a better amount, second of all, tithing teaches us a better order. A better order. The principle of first fruits is a really important one for us to understand. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with all your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
Giving out of our first fruits means that when we receive something from God, whether that's income or harvest or asset, we give the first portion of those goods back to God. You see, everyone, and you know this, everyone is going to want a piece of what God gives us. The government, our lenders, our service providers, our children. Wink, wink, Avery and Colby. All kids. Everyone's going to want a piece, right? When we tithe on our first fruits, we are saying to ourselves and to our families and to all those around us that God's our first priority. That God's our first priority. This is the reason why it's better for us to give from our gross income. Because if we don't do that, well, who gets first fruits? The government. That we would do this kind of thing is not merely symbolic. It's not just meaningless symbol. Even if it were, symbols actually shape what we believe. They shape who we are, and they shape how we live. So tithing is one of many ways which God teaches us how to order our lives. And there is a proper order. God first, everything else second. Number three. Tithing teaches us a better bounty. The last verses of this passage speak about the provision and the blessing that God promises to give us when we are generous to him. This is truly counterintuitive. Our natural understanding is that bounty is best achieved by keeping. That's the way to bounty. When God has given you the harvest of your fields, bounty comes when you store it away. If you need to build a bigger barn, do it. Scripture teaches that God's bounty is actually found by giving. When God has given you the harvest of your field, bounty comes when you keep sowing it. When you just keep sowing generously out of the harvest because more and more and more harvests are coming. But unless you sow, there's no more to be had. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul makes this point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Maybe you've heard it said that God will not be our debtor, or you can't outgive God. Those are kind of trite, but they're true. The point is the same. If you give bountifully to God, you won't go without. God will not let you. Now, I have to warn you. We're getting close to the end here. I have to warn you. It's here that things get heretical really fast. That God will provide for your needs when you are faithful and generous to him is not the same as if you give God what he wants, he'll give you what you want. It's not that. One is the gospel. The other is the gospel of prosperity. One is faith. The other is formula. Despite the dangers of the prosperity gospel and of its preachers, and you'll find many on TV or wherever else, we cannot and should not lose sight of the fact that God actually does promise to bless us when we are good and generous stewards of his resources. Jesus himself said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure... The size of the cup that you use, it will be measured back to you, says Jesus. 
tithing teaches us a better bounty. God's bounty is so much bigger than we actually think it is. And the Lord says, try me. Try me. Tithing teaches us a better amount, a better order, and a better bounty. Now, I think it's important for me to say this to you just because you might not know this. Part of my role as a pastor is to shepherd the congregation. And a part of that means I shepherd us in terms of our generosity. This is a super hard thing for pastors to do well. Because if we know what you all give, it's very easy for our flesh to take over. But if we do not know what you give, we cannot shepherd you. With that dilemma, I've chosen not to know what you give. Which means I can't really shepherd you except in these vague ways. I can do it corporately, but not individually. So I don't know what you give. That's between you and God. And that's where it always is, between you and God. And here's what I'll say. In closing, one of the best ways to learn how to tithe, to learn why tithing matters, to learn what God's bounty looks like, is to hear testimony from others. That's how. If I asked you to tell me some of the stories of God's faithfulness to you when you were faithful to tithe, I know many of you would have remarkable things to share. I know that for a fact. Some of you have told me those stories already. And so actually what I'd like you to do in response to this sermon is actually to send me your stories. Perhaps it was a moment that you weren't sure you would have enough and you gave anyway and God provided abundantly. Perhaps it was a moment that you stepped out in faith for the first time and God used that to change your life. Perhaps it just doesn't feel all that remarkable to you, but the fact is that you've always tithed and God has always provided. Whatever your story is, if God has used tithing to bless you and to grow your faith, I invite you to write a few paragraphs, send it to me, and I'd like to send it out as a corporate testimony to the congregation. I want to share that later on this week. And I might share some of the ways in which my wife and I have found God to be so faithful to us over the last 15 years of our marriage. Let's pray. Father, we open our hearts to you. We must. If we're not open to you, we will not receive. And Lord, part of opening up to you means we open up all of our desires and all of our resources. Unless we give freely unto you, we cannot receive freely from you. May it be so, Lord, that we truly, really do experience your bounty in every way. And teach us how to give. In Christ's name, amen.